Welcome back to the Falklands War Podcast. This is episode 6. The Argentinians have just landed commandos and attacked the marine barracks at Moody Brook, but missed their target as the 40 specialist British soldiers had been on the move for more than a day already. As you heard last episode, the British finally managed to get a warning to the Falklands Governor Rex Hunt a few hours before the Argentinian fleet anchored off Port Stanley on the 2nd of April 1982. Argentinian Rear Admiral Busser had been studying the problems of landing at the Falklands since January 1982 and the commanders had carried out the first obvious mission to strike at the marine barracks by surprise and without bloodshed, he told author Martin Middlebrook. Yet the commandos were accused later of lobbing phosphorus grenades into the barracks and peppering it with automatic rifle fire, although the marines had left hours before. Busser's original plan was to land the amphibious commando company during the night on a beach two miles south of Stanley, then to march overland and seize the barracks along with other key points in the town. The main landing force would then come ashore at dawn with an army platoon sent ahead to capture Government House and the Governor, while the Marines completed the sweep of Stanley. A small plane would fly from the mainland once the island was secure, and its occupants would prepare the airport for the arrival of a much larger army contingent, which would replace the landing force and form the first garrison. Two more platoons were to be transported by helicopter from the Almorante Irza to occupy Goose Green and the Darwin area. However, he hit a snag. Firstly, there was no surprise. His own state radio had told everyone the night before that by dawn the Falklands would be ours. So they thought the beach would be defended and the airport runway blocked. He was right about the latter. Worse, the Puma helicopter that was supposed to be used on board the Almirante Eriza had broken loose in its hangar during the raging storm you heard about last episode and was damaged. Busse flew from Cabo San Antonio to the Santisima Trinidad to meet his old friend Rear Admiral Alara and discuss what to do. The two had entered the Naval Academy together on the same day in 1947. They were close. Alara told him that they had to move fast. Any new decisions must be communicated by 10 hours 15 to avoid postponing the entire operation. By now, the commanders were already on the island and would be left in danger of a counterattack by the British Royal Marines. So Alara and Garcia cancelled the light plane flight from the mainland and the army platoon that was earmarked for government house was switched to seize the airport and clear any obstructions. The small amphibious commando that was going to follow up the attack on key points was now told to head off to government house. The operation on Goose Green Darwin was also cancelled because the Puma was damaged. They were now going to land the full 940 Argentine troops versus 81 British Marines and sailors. The new plan had a weakness. Instead of the 39 men who had been trained to clear the all-important government centre, the task was shifted to 16 amphibious commandos under Lieutenant Commander Pedro Giacchino. This was unfortunate for him and his men because it was a small force. They didn't know what the house looked like and they were going to face the stiffest opposition on the island. Luckily, though, for the Argentinians, the weather held, with one officer saying it was like sailing on a swimming pool. The day before the assault, every man on board the landing ship Cabo San Antonio was given a hot bath or a shower and a good meal. Then at 1900 hours, Busser addressed the troops on the ship's loudspeaker. 
We have been chosen by destiny to carry out one of the dearest ambitions of the Argentine people, he said. I expect from you bravery in battle, respect for your enemy, and generosity in victory. I warn you that if there are any excesses against enemy troops, women, or private property, I will impose the maximum penalty, which of course was to be shot. Carry out your duty with the blessings of our Lord. God save Argentina. According to sources on board, the men then exploded in shouts of agreement, just like a goal being scored, said one. The British government had put out an urgent call to Washington, asking President Ronald Reagan to intervene and stop the invasion, and he tried to talk by phone with President Galtieri, but the Argentinian dictator refused to take the call. Reagan persisted. Eventually, the two did speak, but Galtieri said he could not stop the operation, what the Argentinians called Operación Azul, or Operation Blue, had started already. Initially, the plan was called Operación Rosario, Rosary, but was changed to blue after the color of the Virgin Mary's robe. The recapture of the Falklands was seen as a crusade by Buenos Aires. The Type 42 destroyer, Santa Trinidad, of English design, as you know, was already anchored one mile from the Falklands coast and had been there since the evening of the 1st of April. It had placed the 21 inflatable rubbery boats into the sea and launched the commandos under Lieutenant Bernard Schweitzer, who were to attack the marine barracks. They hit the thick kelp off Mullet Creek, and as the boats revved their engines, a Royal Marines observer reported erroneously that he heard a helicopter. He couldn't see the boats. Some of the engines failed and the boats had to be rowed, but the kelp was too thick, and eventually the boats were literally pulled through the forest of seagrove. The commandos landed at a small unnamed beach near Lake Point at 11 p.m. and all 92 marines were counted and present. They removed their neoprene outer suits, took their weapons and other equipment out of waterproof packs and prepped for movement. A small party under Lieutenant Commander Giottino headed to Government House, only two and a half miles away due north. But Moody Brook Barracks was six miles away and the rest of the commandos set off at speed, cresting a high ridge on the way. During the move, one of the company's second-in-commands, Lieutenant Vardi, fell and broke his ankle. He was left behind with a single soldier, thus becoming the first casualty of the war. Ironically, his injury was caused by the islands themselves, which is probably symbolic in a way. By the time the rest arrived at Moody Brook Barracks, it was 5.30am. It had taken six hours to travel six miles. It was dark and the commando leader said later that they had not lobbed grenades into the building, but tear gas. The British maintained it was phosphorus grenades. The Argentinians said they didn't fire into the building. The British said they did. However, this doesn't sit well with their orders. They had been ordered to make as much of a display of noise and firepower as possible, which was part of Rear Admiral Busse's overall plan. Giochino's forces were also supposed to be attacking the rear of Government House two miles away at the same time, and the main landing force was supposed to be coming ashore in a simultaneous display of Argentine presence on three sides. But there was no sound coming from Government House, and the commandos at Moody Brook were worried. Nor was there any sound coming from the landing area. Still, he ordered his machine gunners to shoot off a few more rounds as part of the proof of power, then settled down to wait for dawn. Meanwhile, Pedro Giacchino and his small party had arrived at Government House, 
but couldn't deploy by 5.30, and of course by now they heard the gunfire from Moody Brook Barracks. A Royal Marine log inside Government House showed later that the first action by the Argentinians at the house began at 6.15am. The attention now shifted to Hunt. Believe it or not, earlier in 1982, he was visited by an Argentinian tourist who claimed to be an architect and was very interested in the Government House's design and he wanted a photocopy of the plans. And Hunt said later, Like a fool, I gave it to him. People. But for some reason, the Argentinian intelligence unit didn't give the photocopy to its own commandos. Giacchino didn't have it. Which is a bit silly, and goes to show you how military dictatorships are less effective than you think. As Giacchino's small unit of 16 men approached Government House, he split them in two, with a group on the other side of the house and a second group at the back. The commandos then watched movement inside the house and saw vehicles arriving. By now, the burst of fire at Moodybrook could be heard, so Giacchino then went ahead with his original plan, which was supposed to be based on the element of surprise. He got up and walked to the back door of the house with four other commandos and broke the door down. Not having the plans, he realized he wasn't in the house, but a small rear structure. The five then ran out of the small room and had no idea that waiting for them inside Government House was the main concentration of the entire British defence. 32 Royal Marines, as well as 11 Royal Navy sailors, all armed, and a local man, ex-Royal Marine, who had a hunting rifle. Governor Rex Hunt was also armed with a shotgun and 9mm pistol. They all opened fire on Guaccino, hitting him in the upper leg, and a bullet severed his artery. Lieutenant Kuroka was hit by two bullets in the arm and one in the chest, but his Swiss army knife was in the breast pocket and saved his life. Three other soldiers weren't hit and dived for cover into the servants' block, where they were captured by the Royal Marines. Guachino was shouting for help. An Argentinian medic ran over, but the British lobbed a grenade at him, and he was hit by shrapnel. Later, the Argentinians filed no complaints, as it was semi-dark and no one could see the Red Cross on the medic's satchel. The first assault on the British at Stanley had failed. Giacchino was lying in the open bleeding and he was also holding a grenade from which he had withdrawn the pin. Gunfire was being exchanged. The building was being peppered by bullets but so far none of the defenders had been hit. The desultory firing ceased and the British then saw Giacchino's grenade. They shouted at him to throw it away so they could help him. There are two versions about what happened next. Major Norman, the Royal Marine commander, said Giochino was shouting aggressively and brandishing the grenade. The Argentinians say there was a language problem and he was merely showing them that he had a grenade. So he was left lying there, bleeding out. The main landing party was about to come ashore, but it was four miles away to the east and would take more than two hours to reach Giochino. Rear Admiral Busset was in touch with his men by radio using short messages and English voice code, which the Rear Admiral said later was to confuse the British. I'm not quite sure why they thought this was the plan. It's kind of humorous to hear that the Argentinian Rear Admiral was giving curt commands in English, which he thought would make the English think he was English. It was a little too late for that, I fear. The landing ship Cowboy San Antonio was now bringing the main landing party into the beach, escorted by the frigate Drummond. It was a few minutes before 0600 hours and the amphibious vehicles on the deck were ready to roll. 
There were 20 American-built FMC troop-carrying Amtraks and some unarmed material carrying Lark 5 vehicles. These launched at exactly 0600 hours. The bow doors opened and Amtrak Commander Lieutenant Mario Forbice said later that Everyone was emotional. We were going into real action for the first time, an action to recover the Malvinas. Three waves of these vehicles came ashore. First were four Vanguard vehicles, then 14, which included Rear Admiral Busse and Commander Alfredo Weinstabel on board. The latter was the commander of the 2nd Marine Infantry Battalion. The third group contained the Battalion 2IC as well as a recovery Amtrak, and as they hit the water, they sheared off left or right to make space for others. Red lamp changed to green and they were off. They churned their way to the beach with the Cabo San Antonio's radar guiding them past the notorious York Point rocky outcrops. A reconnaissance party had placed a red lamp on the beach for the final run into land and the operation was well executed. Nothing went wrong. The first vehicles hit the beach at 0600 hours 30, half an hour before the sun rose. Three quarters of a mile away, the Royal Marines on the next beach failed to spot the Amtraks. In the first four Amtraks was Lieutenant Commander Hugo Santillon, who said, It all went just as though we were on an exercise in Patagonia. The beach is incredibly white there, the sand ending with a steep slope of 10 meters from the waterline, a few rocks, no cover. There were sitting ducks, but no one fired at them. The Argentinians drove up into the open ground and turned south through a narrow gully 200 meters wide, and this was tough going as the rock piles grew. And as they moved, they expected to be hit at any second, and when nothing happened, they believed the Royal Marines were tricking them. All 20 Amtranks were ashore, but ironically, Rear Admiral Bousset's command vehicle, known as Charlie 1, had damaged its deflector plates as it hit the water. It could only move backwards, and so the Argentine commander of the invasion of the Falklands arrived on the islands in reverse, until the tracks hit the beach, then it swiveled around. One of the vanguard Amtraks was on its way to Stanley Airport under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Mohammed Ali Sanaldin. Three others took up supporting positions as they tore over the rough ground machine guns at the ready. The airport was deserted except for blocks of concrete and old vehicles on the runway. The men began to clear these. The other Amtraks headed towards Stanley, but first they had to negotiate a narrow stretch of land they instantly named the Neck. It was so narrow. This was an obvious ambush point, but still no British fire. Eventually, two and a half miles further, just outside Stanley, they came across a small group of Marines who were defending the approach with anti-tank rocket launchers and machine guns. The time was 7.15 and the battle commenced. The British had parked a bulldozer of some sort on the road, and as the Argentinians skirted this, the Royal Marines opened fire from one of the three houses around 500 meters away. The rockets all missed, while the machine guns were highly accurate. The Amtraks took cover in a small nook nearby, and the infantry jumped off. They deployed a recoilless rifle with a hollow charge round which hit the ridge of the house where the British had set up their machine gun. The Marines in that house lobbed a purple smoke grenade, and withdrew. But another group in a second house continued to fire, so three mortar rounds were sent in that direction. One hit the target, the firing ceased. Thus ended the only action of the day for the second marines, although they had taken one casualty. Later, 
The Falklanders reported many were wounded, but the witnesses I've described who were leading the invasion say only one was hit in the hand by shrapnel. Rear Admiral Bousset was anxious. He'd received no report from Government House yet, so ordered the Amtraks to push on into Stanley and for the six guns from the artillery to come ashore. As they moved, the drivers purposefully gunned their engines, making a huge racket, the tracks clattering loudly, all adding to the psychological pressure on the defenders. By 0800, Port Stanley was taken. Governor Hunt was watching these heavy vehicles and was aware that artillery had landed, so further resistance was hopeless. He sent for Vice Commodore Gilobet, the Larder airline officer, who'd been in custody all night long with other locally based Argentinians, and he asked him to negotiate. A ceasefire proposal was passed back to Rear Admiral Bousset in Stanley, who proposed a meeting in front of St. Mary's Catholic Church on the waterfront near Government House. When Hunt failed to make the date, Bousset walked towards Government House instead and ordered his men outside to cease fire. Then he calmly walked in, and a British soldier pointed a rifle at his stomach. I was not armed, and I thought in the next few moments I would either be a prisoner or the victor. He held out his hand, and surprised, the British soldier shook it. The rest of the Marines also lined up to shake the rear admiral's hand, including Major Nutt and Major Norman, but Rex Hunt refused, saying the Argentinians were intruders. Hunt was also reluctant to surrender, although it would have been very stupid not to, and would have endangered the lives of all the British on the island. Eventually, after some debate and pressure from the Marines, who were professional enough to know when to commit suicide and now wasn't the time, Rex Hunt gave in. Giacchino was still lying bleeding outside and was in a very poor way. And now there was a moment of Anglo-Argentine compassion, for as the Argentinians lifted the lieutenant commander onto a stretcher, they were helped by Major Norman. Giacchino was a very large man, heavy, and Bousset was thankful for the display of compassion. I have a very good feeling towards him. His attitude is something I shall never forget, said the rear admiral later of Major Norman. But poor Giattino died from loss of blood. His femoral artery had been cut. Later, he was given the posthumous award of Cruz la Nación Argentina al Heroico Valore en Combate, its highest decoration. Giacchino was buried at the Mar del Plata, where his unit was based. And so, the fighting was over. Excited and proud Argentinians were everywhere, waving those flags they'd carried with them all the way from the ports of departure. General Garcia and Rear Admiral Alara flew in by helicopter shortly after 8 a.m. No civilians nor Royal Marines had been wounded or hurt. The Argentinians had suffered one dead, two wounded. The army secured the airport, then headed east to the lighthouse, where local man Basil Biggs had been on duty all night, reporting the Argentinian movements. Biggs watched as an officer placed an Argentinian flag on the lighthouse rail, and the officer ordered him not to touch it. OK, it's only temporary. The British will sort this lot out, said Biggs. Oh no, replied Second Lieutenant Roberto Reyes. This is forever. Back in London, Margaret Thatcher and her cabinet were going to make sure it wasn't. What happened next is for next episode. The theme to the series is a brilliant composition by Kevin MacLeod called Devastation and Revenge, and I want to thank Kevin for letting me use his wonderful piece of music. 
please rate the podcast on iTunes. Or you can email me from the website abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye.